So let me start by showing you guys a picture. This is my grandfather and my father as a, as a child. This is Easter of 1958. Cincinnati, Ohio Zoo. I used to, uh, it used to drive me crazy that my grandmother wrote on the front of every photo. Now I'm really, really thankful for it because, uh, because I have memories like this. Now, they didn't live anywhere near Cincinnati, so this is like a good indicator of who my grandfather was. Always traveling, always looking for an adventure. This is over two and a half miles from their house. Why on Easter, all dressed up there at the zoo? Who knows? Uh, but it's a fun photo nonetheless. Uh, and my grandfather was, was a great man. Uh, beyond his very strong sock game, which I have inherited as, as well from him, he uh, was a World War II hero. He served in the Philippines. He was a frontline machine gunner, which I only found out just months before he passed away. He didn't talk about the war much. When he returned from the war, he wanted to marry my grandmother and, and wanted to, to save up enough money to do that, so he took a job driving trucks across the country. And just before their wedding, he actually fell out of one of those trucks. I think it was in California. It was definitely far out west. And he had to, because he couldn't drive, because his wrists were all jacked up and his arm was broken, he had to hitchhike back from California or way out west all the way to Indiana to make it in time for the wedding. And you can actually see in their wedding photos that he's got casts and all of these things. Um, so he's a very dedicated man in that way. He owned a gentleman's clothing store, uh, which you might not be surprised by, by his dapper lookingness. Uh, and uh, so he owned the clothing store in downtown Greenwood, Indiana. He went to the same church for 30 years and, and dedicated himself to ministry in, in that place. Uh, he, he was such a hero in so many ways. But but. Kind of surprisingly, one of the things that I was always most impressed with, particularly growing up, to add to all of those other heroic things, is he always knew where he was going. My grandfather always knew where he was going. He never pulled out a map, at least as far as I knew, uh, except to maybe show me something on that map. He had this photographic memory of how to get everywhere he was going. When I started driving, I would call him up, and he would tell me, oh, yeah, to go here, go here, go here. But it was almost poetic in the way he gave directions. They were beautiful and you got a sense of the place as he talked about it. His directions would be something like, oh yeah, okay, so you're going to go on 31 and you're going to turn right onto 50 at the courthouse and you're going to drive for about three miles and then you'll see a water tower and up in the distance and you'll go toward that water tower and right when you pass that you take a left, you'll see the high school on, on your left hand side. You drive there for about two miles and then somewhere in the middle he would always go, you're not there yet but you're getting close. So he'd give you kind of a marker along the way so you felt good about it and then he'd say, okay, so uh, keep going and then I think, if I remember correctly, last year Old Man Smith changed his fence, he painted it black. So I think it's going to be a black fence on your right hand side and then you'll see Joe's Mechanic Shop and then you'll take a left from there. So these really amazing in, in directions. I loved, I loved listening to him give directions. One of the things I admired about my grandfather is that he always helped me get where I was going. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the Magi and their experience today. But I want to do this. I'm hoping that we'll engage Matthew chapter 2 with at least an idea that maybe, just maybe, we all need help finding what we're looking for. I think we all need help finding what we're looking for. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It's in your bulletin. If you have a Bible, you can read along or you can just listen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where's the Messiah, the Savior 
to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what's written in the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with the mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So we have these wise men who travel from a great distance to find Jesus because there's this unique star that shows up in the sky. And to understand why they did this, we have to start to unpack a little bit of who the Magi were and actually who they weren't as well. Because there's some things that we can know to be true and there's some things that might fall more into the legendary category of the Magi. Here's one thing we don't know. We don't know if there were three. They brought three gifts, but we don't know if there were three. Matthew doesn't tell us that. There's, we know there were multiple, because they were wise men, so there were at least two, but there could have been many. They weren't kings in a traditional sense. Sometimes we'll call them kings. There's even a song about that. They weren't kings in a traditional sense, the way we might think. Magi comes from the Greek word magos, where we get magician, but also one who is wise in interpreting stars and dreams, hence wise men. Astrologers is probably the best word that we have for who the Magi were. They almost certainly weren't in the manger also. Matthew verse 11 tells us they came to the house where Jesus was. They saw the star when Jesus was born. That began their journey. It didn't end it. So it probably took them a couple of years to get there. Now, some of you maybe are clicking off in your mind like, wait a second, I have a nativity scene at home, and there's three Magi in there, and that's how it's always been. So what am I supposed to do now? You're supposed to throw it away. No, I'm kidding. No, don't throw it away. I have, a, I have a nativity scene too. But one of the things that we do at the Abbott household is uh, uh, when, we're, when we're setting things out, I like to just give a little context for the story. And, you know, we pull them out. Who's this? Oh, that's a magi. What's a magi? And, you know, I kind of do what I just did there. And uh, it's, it's a blast at the Abbott household. Um, so, and, and then I'm like, okay, but we know they weren't actually there. It took them a couple years to get there. So we're going to put them there because they did see the birth of Jesus, or they're, they're around the birth of Jesus, but they, they weren't actually there. My kids nod, and I feel really good about that, having helped them understand some biblical accuracy. Uh, this, this year did the same thing, and the kids were like, yes, that's great. Um, and so I walk out of the room. I come back five minutes later, and my youngest is taking one of the magi, and he's kind of flying it directly at, at Joseph. And right when they make contact, there's like this explosion sound, like, and then, uh, and then, Best I can tell, some ninja-style uh, street brawl breaks out amongst all the participants in the, in the nativity. Uh, good news, though. Jesus arises out of the trough and, and creates peace among all the participants. So I think he's got it theologically, basically. Um, so I, I'll chalk that up to a victory. Um, but if you put all the legend aside, even if you put all of that aside, what you, what you actually get in the, the story of who the Magi were, the truth of who they were, it's actually pretty unbelievable still. 
We know the wise men weren't Jewish. They were outsiders in that sense. They, they weren't part of God's special plan and the special family that he was going to bring salvation through, Gentiles as the Bible calls them. But even though they weren't Jewish, it doesn't mean they weren't looking for something bigger than themselves. They believed something bigger than themselves was going on in the world, and so they looked to the sky to, to figure it out. They, they, they wanted to see what's up in this world that, that's bigger than, than, than myself. And we, can, and we can hear this, right? We can hear this story and we can say, yeah, yeah, I've heard it like a thousand times. Like, yeah, magi and people from the east and they see a star and they show up at Jesus' birth. It's so ridiculous. I mean, think about it. No one would uh, show up at a hospital with a, a mother and a newborn or, or maybe more accurately to the story at a second birthday party, unannounced, uninvited and say, hey, I just showed up to tell you a couple years ago there was this thunderstorm in Des Moines and so I know your kid's gonna be a great president someday, right? Like no one would do that and we can go, no one would do that. These magi aren't real. This is ridiculous, but... Just because people wouldn't do it today doesn't mean it's all that absurd or even odd if you put yourself in the time of Jesus. We know that astrology in the time of Jesus was thought of as a science, and business was booming, in large part because of something that happened in 44 BC when Julius Caesar is buried, a supernova is seen in the sky, and people start to connect, oh, I get it. Something happens in the sky to announce something significant about people on earth. And so there was this really well-documented, intense interest by astrologers in the connection between events on earth, birth, death, victories of, of people, and something happening in the sky that would somehow announce the significance of the person involved. This is happening a lot. There's a, a, a really well-documented uh, account of this. There was an astrologer from the East that showed up in Rome in 66 AD, causes all kinds of problems because he says, hey, this guy isn't the real king. Caesar, not the real king. There's got to be somebody else because I saw a star. And people started to be like, yeah, I, I get that. We also know that uh, from Roman historians, not even Jewish historians, but Roman historians, that there was this expectation by some people in this time that a new king a king greater than even the Roman Caesar would be born in Judea. So people were looking to the heavens to see heaven break in. And these wise men were no exception. They were spiritual people, and they realized something bigger than themselves was going on. And so they searched the sky because they didn't want to miss it. And we can take that. We can take what we know to be true about the Magi and see that, you know what, there are a lot of people doing the same thing the Magi were doing. We can know the historicity and it can still seem kind of ridiculous. Like it seems kind of ridiculous that God would use a star to announce the birth of his son in, in the world, right? But what if he did it? Like what if God actually used a star? I've heard it said you can always attribute things to natural circumstances because we live in a natural world, but your faith will never grow if you do. Like we can sit at our position of greater knowledge about how the world works, about how stars work, and we could say, well, this is a very natural circumstance. In fact, many people today, scientists today, think, well, it wasn't probably a star. There was actually a unique alignment of Jupiter and Saturn right around the time of the birth of Jesus. That's probably what these magi saw. We can know that and say, well, yeah, it's just, it's just a natural circumstance. But if we attribute it to a natural circumstance, our faith will never grow. And I get it. We don't want to be duped. We don't want to look silly. I don't want to be duped. I don't want to look silly, but cynicism kills faith. And if the Magi had had no faith, they never would have started out. They never would have started looking. And God spoke to them in a way that they could hear. 
They saw a star. And I think this is huge. This is, this is one of the most uh, significant parts of this story. These guys had very little understanding of the Hebrew scriptures, if any at all. And if they did know the Hebrew scriptures, they would realize that, that the scriptures don't look favorably upon their profession. The prophet Jeremiah said, don't be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. Isaiah actually mocks astrologers. He, he says, stargazers who make predictions month by month, they can't even save themselves. Part of the story that is so powerful, because it's true, is that God chooses to speak to these stargazers in a way that they would understand through a star. It's because God is not passively good. God is actively good. I mean, what other religion has a God who would, who would meet people right where they are? He would stoop down and talk to people in a way that they would understand communicating with them because he, he desperately wants to be near people. God is not passively good. He's actively good. They didn't know the scriptures. They knew stars. And so God said, okay, we'll start there. It shows the links that God goes to get their attention, and he does the same for us if we're willing to look. To the person that loves hiking in the grandeur of creation, to the artist, the beauty of the painting, to the musician in the harmonies, to the scientist in discovery, to the parent in the joy of their children, to the casual observer, the help that's given in times of tragedy. He doesn't speak to ancient Mesopotamians like 21st century scientists, and he doesn't speak to first century agrarian Jews like bankers on Wall Street in 2017. God speaks to people where they are. And by any means, they'll listen. Because God will always help you find him. So these outsiders knew, they, knew where they were going. They followed the star, but they didn't know exactly what they were going to see when they, when they got there. They knew they were looking for a king, but they didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. The catalyst for them leaving, they, they left, they went on this journey because they had a question. Here's the question they were trying to answer. What is worth pursuing? What's worth going after? We know this is the question because they, they gave up so much time to, to, to find what's worth pursuing, what's worth worshiping. I mean, it took probably a couple years to get there. They also brought gifts of value, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they were ready to lay those at the feet of the person if the person lived up to what was promised. What's worth pursuing? That's the answer they, to the question that they were after. And I think the answer to that question is what motivates us as well in all of the things that we do. What's worth pursuing? What's worth going after? Whether we're followers of Jesus or not, the answer to that, it dictates how we use our time, what we think about, where we work, where our kids go to school, what car we drive, what we eat for lunch, what keeps us up at night, those are all products of the answer to the question, what is worth pursuing? The challenge is, just as much today as it was then, is that that can seem like a moving target because the people around us can, can fill in the blanks on what's worth pursuing, what we see on TV, what we see in the news, what we hear in our offices what we experience in the car line when we're picking our kids up from school, what the neighbor bought that I can't afford, all of those things start to fill in the blanks for us and what's worth pursuing. Or maybe, maybe we just stand looking in the mirror and we wait for feedback. 
and these questions of, of what is worth pursuing can leave us boiling our life goals down to one of two things. Make me famous or make it painless. Make me famous or make life painless. Give me, give me money, power, success, accolades so that I know I'm worth it, so that I know I have value. Or if I can't have that, at least point me in the, in, the, in the direction of the thing that makes me numb to that entertainment, substances, self-focused relationships, so that I don't have to ask any questions anymore. And we can move between those two things in a dizzying dance. But here's the problem. The make me famous or make it painless life doesn't lead us to where we want to get to. It won't help us find what we're looking for because neither of those things are as good as what's promised. So these wise men go looking for an answer, the same one we go looking for. What's worth pursuing? What's worth building my life around? What's worth worshiping? And they arrive at the palace of Herod. A little bit about Herod. Herod was what's called a client king of the Roman Empire. King of the Jews, you might say. But he was appointed. He, he, he was Jewish, sort of. He married uh, a Jew, but, but he had this propensity for killing people that got close to him. So he had a couple of different relationships. And uh, so he was sort of Jewish. But his job it was essentially this. The Romans put him in charge of, hey, make sure everybody pays their taxes and make sure nobody revolts against us. That's your job. You can do that. You can stay in power. So he had power. But he had this way of making things terrible for people if his power was threatened, which is what often happens if we make power our ultimate thing. We make the world around us, everybody, miserable if that power's threatened. He'd do things like... um, At one point, he backed the wrong Roman leadership, and so there was actually someone who could stake a claim to being the client king of Judea, and so he had them killed before that got too serious. That's on the Roman side of things. to keep power there. On the Jewish side of things, there were a couple of teachers at one point and their pupils who started to teach, hey, uh, idol worship? God's been telling us that's bad for a while, yet there's a Roman eagle on the entrance to the temple. That's an idol. We should tear that down. And as that uproar started to build some steam, Herod, to make sure that he kept power, had the the teachers and the pupils burned alive publicly just to make sure no one got out of hand. Herod, the one with the power, right? When the Magi shows up, he calls the priests and the teachers of the law together, and he says, look, you guys are the ones that know the scriptures. You know about the character of God. Uh, They're talking about a king. I'm guessing they're talking about the Savior, the Messiah. Where's he supposed to be born? And they say, Bethlehem, where Jesus was. So Herod goes, okay, cool. So he goes back to the Magi, and he says, hey, when you go, go look for him. Go to Bethlehem. I think that's the spot. And when you find him, tell me, and I'll come worship. That was all a lie. You see, Herod uh, was very concerned about his power at this time when the Magi show up. There was this uh, prophecy and and belief pretty widespread among the Jews that the great king in the line of David would restore uh, righteous leadership to Israel in the generation after Herod. So the person that was going to come after him. So when someone shows up and says, hey, a great king has been born, that's going to be troubling if power is what you're after. 
This leads Herod, if you read the rest of Matthew chapter 2, and I encourage you, read the rest of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2 and, and then keep reading because it's kind of sad right there, but you know, keep reading the rest of the story. Uh, Herod orders what's called the slaughter of the innocent. So all boys under the age of two in Bethlehem, he orders to be killed because that could threaten his power. He thought, I can keep power this way. Joseph takes Mary and Jesus off to Egypt for safety, and then they return a little bit later. Herod was a king but he wasn't the king the Magi were looking for. And I think what's so striking and honestly heartbreaking about this story, when I look at the people involved, you've got Herod, you've got the teachers of the law, and you have the Magi. What's, what's honestly kind of heartbreaking is they all had the same opportunity to keep looking for the real thing, for the, for the real king, but only the Magi did. See, Herod had the responsibility of leading God's people. He should have kept looking but he didn't. The teachers of the law had the responsibility to search God's word so that they could help the people know how to move toward God. They should have kept looking, but they didn't. Herod settled for power. The teachers of the law settled for knowledge. Only the magi kept looking because they realized both knowledge and power are terrible ends. They can be very good means. There's nothing wrong with authority if that's wielded in a way that serves others. And there's nothing wrong with knowledge, obviously, because it helps us move in the right direction. They're just terrible ends. They're good means. They're just terrible ends. Because neither of those things, power nor knowledge, will provide an answer to that question, what is worth pursuing? A few months ago, uh, I got my youngest son, uh, Joe Lee, a gift. It's a set, it was a set of six superhero action figures and not like the little ones like the big ones and it was awesome and it was like this huge box and we wrapped it up it was so great and uh and he's big into to action heroes superheroes and uh it was the it was the avengers um and so he kind of starts peeling the wrapping back and the first one he sees is captain america and that's awesome because everybody loves captain america and then he's peeling it more and there's like two people i don't even know if they're real avengers they like, seem to like just throw them into the package and then there he's like kept going um he gets to the end, and it's Iron Man, and he loves Iron Man. So he kind of makes a beeline, unwraps that, picks him up, starts flying around, because anybody who has value can fly around, obviously, right? Magi and, and Iron Man, right? And superheroes. And so, uh, so he's flying around, and I walk up to him. I was like, hey, buddy, that is so awesome. Are you pumped? He's like, I'm pumped. And I'm like, it's so cool that you have Iron Man. And when I said that, it triggered something in him, and he looks in my eyes, like deep into my soul, and he's like, Dad, this is not the real Iron Man. And I was like, oh, all right, it's fine. Okay, he goes, the real one is in the movie. And I was like, okay, cool. And then he goes, I really want to see that movie. And I was like, oh, okay, I see where this is going. So this is either a lesson on how consumerism can steal your joy when your parents give you awesome gifts and you don't see it as valuable, or this is a lesson on how to not settle for lesser things if the real thing is out there. The Magi could have got to Herod and said, close enough. We're looking for a king. This guy's a king. Kings have power. This guy has power. He seems kingly enough. We'll just stay here. They could have settled. And I think the reason why we settle for lesser things so often is because we mistake quick for calling. We think, oh, if it comes together quickly, if it's like the first place I stop, everything's kind of falling in place, that must be what we're called to. But the scriptures are full of examples of, of places where people had to go through a process to see God work fully. Think 
uh, as Jesus grew, he was healing people, and there was a blind man. He tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash to be healed. This man had to go through a city, a crowded city, down a treacherous staircase to a pool. I wonder if he got halfway down that staircase and thought, Jesus can't be who he promised he was, because this is not working. Think the Israelites when uh, God says, hey, I need you to take the fortified city of Jericho. And they're like, cool, we'll get the army together. And he's like, no, 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 don't get the army. Just take some trumpets. Like, I just want you to kind of like band around and, and, and have a good time. And I'm sure they were like, God, I don't understand you, but okay. And so they go out and they start marching. He says, go around seven times and then the wall will fall. I wonder if on time three and a half, no brick had fallen yet. I wonder if they were like, God can't be in this. I mean, there's no evidence that he's in this at all. Part of why we stop is because we mistake quick for calling. And when we settle for, settle for quick over calling, it might lead us to worshiping a king, but I don't think we'll make it to the king. We can focus on the bright stars and we can miss the sun. We can get close and then just stop. And you say, well, I guess this is close enough. I was looking for significance. I was looking for what is of worth, but I guess comfort or authority or momentary distraction or momentary adoration, I guess that'll do. I guess that's close enough. And the challenge for the Magi and the challenge for us is to not settle for a king if we're looking for the king. I recently read this book called The Crossover. Um, uh, Caleb, my seventh grader now, had to read it in sixth grade. It's a, it's a collection of short poems that are a single author compiled into a story about a family who has two sons who play basketball. And, uh, and it was really, really good. So if you've got a couple hours, it, it reads really quick. It's, it's a really fun thing. But throughout the book, there are these things called basketball rules. And I really liked it, and it was really cool. But basketball rule number three in the book was never let anyone lower your goal. And that, that took me back to playing basketball in Indiana. I grew up there in Indiana. I've told this before. I play basketball all the time, uh, as you do in Indiana. There's really nothing else to do. You can look at corn and play basketball. So I chose to play basketball. Um, and so uh, I remember we had a goal that was 10 foot. That's regulation height. And we never lowered that goal. You know, now goals can, they can go up and down. It was always at 10 feet. I remember when I was a little kid, I was like, I'm never going to be able to make a basket. I just can't even get it up there. And you're kind of chucking it up there, chucking it up there. We've all seen kids do that. Uh, once in a while, we had a friend down the street who would, uh, he had a goal that lowered. And we'd go over there and do pretend dunk contests. So we'd pretend we were like Shaquille O'Neal or Michael Jordan. We'd like dunk and we'd get like three inches off the ground. And when someone finally made a dunk, we'd all go crazy. Oh, man. And, and it would always get broken up same way every time. Somebody would dunk and you'd, you'd You'd uh, scrape your hand up because, you know, soft hands, little kids. And so we'd dunk and then it would like rip somebody's hand and we'd cry. And everybody's crying, ah, and then it would like break up. So we'd dunk contests once in a while, but when we were keeping score, we always kept the goal at 10 feet because if your goal is to hit a basket on 10 foot rim, you don't lower the goal. And I remember again when I was a kid, I would just I would chuck it up and chuck it up and it would just, it would like never ever make it. And so, you know, my brother helped me. He's like, you know, here's your form. My dad would help me, and other people would help coaches and different things. And, and then over time, what seemed impossible as I grew and got better technique, it, it seemed challenging. And then over time, it went from challenging to actually reasonable that I could hit a shot. Now, I'm, I'm almost 40. It's actually moving backwards. It's, it's like in the challenging category again. Like, it was reasonable for a while. Now, it's more challenging. But, but you didn't lower your goal, because if you're trying to make a 10-foot goal, a basket on a 10-foot goal, you never let anyone lower your goal. I think it's a good basketball rule. I think it's a good life rule as well. If you want to be a great parent, 
Don't settle for, well, I'm around. If you want to be a great spouse, don't settle for being a disconnected, mostly unavailable roommate. If you want to be a great employee, don't settle for, well, I'm better than the guy next to me. If you want to be a great employer, don't settle for, I think I gave a Christmas bonus last year. I don't know. Don't settle for a king if you're looking for the king. Don't settle for power, money, authority, good looks, Facebook likes, comfortable living if you need a savior. And we all need a savior because none of us is all right all the time. Don't let anyone lower your goal. So the Magi keep looking. And they come to the house where Jesus was. And what they saw was not a brutal king bent on keeping power at everybody else's expense. They saw a child who was resting under the star that had led them there. A child that displayed that heaven had indeed broken in. That would one day go on to be the shepherd of his people and the savior of the world. One who would grow to one day say, I haven't come to condemn the world, I've come to save it. Who would say, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. One who would go to the hurting. He would cross the street toward those that were outsiders. He would invite those back in who fell short of his calling. One who would eventually take on all the sin and pain and death in this entire world so that we don't have to be lost to sin and pain and death. One whose love was too big for death to contain it. The Magi knew they found what they were looking for when they saw him. And the story of the Magi reminds us that the critical factor in our faith, both then and now, the critical factor is not the strength, but the object. The Magi didn't know exactly what they were going to find. They just had enough faith to start looking. And when they saw him, they knew that that should be the object of their faith. Imagine you're falling off a cliff. All right, so some of you are like, whoa, preach, man, take it easy. Um, but stick with me for just a second. Imagine you're falling off a cliff. And sticking out of that cliff is a branch. It's strong enough to hold you, but you have no idea if it's actually strong enough to hold you. And as you fall, you only have enough time to reach out for that branch. The question is, how much faith do you have to have in that branch to save you to reach out for it? Do you have to have absolute faith that that branch is going to hold you to reach out for it? No, of course not. Because it's the only means of your salvation. You only have to have enough faith to reach out for the branch. It's because the quantity of your faith doesn't save you. The object of your faith saves you. It's a tragic mistake to let the amount of faith you have at any given moment keep you from looking for the right object of your faith. The Magi didn't have all the faith. We're not going to have all the faith. It doesn't matter. It matters that we have the right object of our faith, the king. And what the Magi found was the answer to their longing. They didn't know everything, but they knew enough to make Jesus the object of their faith. They said, you know what? The object of our faith is not going to be our resources. They gave him gifts of value. It's not going to be our intellect, our ability to find him. That's not where I'm going to put my faith. No, I'm going to put it in him. When they saw him, they realized he was worth finding, and they realized they were in the right place. I told you my grandfather gave, gives these, gave these incredible detailed directions on how to get to places. 
He would always end the same way. He would always say, you know you're there when. That's, that was kind of the final. So midway, he's like, you're not there yet, but you're getting close. And in the end, he would say, you know you're there when. So he would add some very distinctive detail, like, you know you're there when you see the house with the 50 dogs. And it's like, that would really w wouldn't work, because that's like every house in central Indiana. Um, everybody's like the bumpuses up there. But, um, but, but he would give some distinctive mark. When I was in college, I drove to my grandparents' house for the first time. I'd been there tons of times. I could close my eyes and walk through their house and, you know, find everything, but I'd never driven there before. I was, you know, 18 years old and just getting my feet under me, and it was about an hour drive from Ball State University, which is where I went. If you're wondering, yes, that's a real place. They give degrees and everything. Ball State University in Muncie, uh, down to just south of Indianapolis in Greenwood, and he gave me the detailed directions, and so I got off the interstate and started to see things that were both familiar and were on the directions. And so went through downtown Greenwood, which is where the shop used to be, and that looked familiar. And I turned on Brewer Drive, where the two-story house was right across from the elementary school, and that looked familiar, just as he had said. But I started going down Brewer Drive, and everything started to kind of look the same. All the houses were like 800 square feet, and they were all white, and they were all built in the same year. You know, It was one of those developments. And I started to get a little nervous, like this all looks the same. I don't know if I'm going to find it. Maybe I've already passed it. And so I thought about turning around. But he said, he said, you'll know you're there. This is the end of his instruction. You'll know you're there because you'll see me. I'll be standing out front. And so as I'm driving, I'm like, I don't see him. Maybe I missed it. And then, and then I, just, I got just far enough and I saw him. Right on the stoop, there was, they had this black rail two steps up to their front door, black, front, black wrought iron front door. And he was standing there holding the railing. And he was smiling. He's always smiling. And, uh, and he was towering, this towering man. Now, I look at pictures now of me as an adult, and I'm standing next to him, and he's, you know, he's maybe just a couple inches taller than me, but I, I will never, he's always just towering to me. And I just remember the relief that I felt because I was starting to get nervous, and I was like, I, don't, I haven't driven that long. I don't know where I'm going. I knew I was there when I saw him, and he was waiting for me. What we're looking for, the answer to that question, what is worth pursuing? If we keep looking, it ultimately will lead us like it did the Magi to Jesus. I think part of why I admire my, my grandfather so much is he, he displayed this beautiful characteristic of God. He, he helped me find him. God will always help you find him. And every time you do, every time you find him, because it's not a one-time thing, you get to find him again and again and again. Every time you find him, he'll tell you you're loved and that you're worth showing up for. Not, not, when, not when you're good enough, not when you're wealthy enough, not when your faith is big enough. Right where you are, you're worth it. And the invitation for all of us is to not stop short, to not settle for anything less is the one who came to tell you that, that you're loved, that you're worth it right where you are. He's worth placing your faith in, building a life around, being changed by again and again and again. Like my grandfather who, who kept an eye out for me, was willing to meet me so that I knew where I was going. As long as we're willing to keep looking for the king, even if we found him before, he'll always keep an eye out for us and he'll always help us find him. And he'll be waiting for you every time you arrive. Let's pray. 
Father God, thank you for the truth of, of, your, of your story that you invite to be our story. Thank you that you're not a God who stays disconnected at a distance. You're a God who will always help us find you. You're always excited to see us. God, as we move into a season in the next couple of days, the next couple of weeks, that is almost certainly one of the busiest of the year. There's so many things that could vie for the affections of our heart. I pray that we don't settle for lesser things, that we enjoy lesser things as, as means, maybe, but, but, but never as ultimate things. I pray that we don't settle for lesser things, that we keep looking, not for a king, but for the king, trusting that you'll help us find you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.